You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Two episodes for you now based on the signs of the times. The first is called A Year in Review um, by Brother Roger Long from the Coventry Grosvenor Road Ecclesia. And the second episode is called Watch and Pray Always. This year continue events that indicate we can soon anticipate the return of the Lord Jesus to the earth to set up God's kingdom. The focus on Israel and her neighbours, the amazing agreement between a number of Arab countries and Israel helped to set the scene for the Lord's intervention. The second talk carefully examines the Lord's final warnings and his encouragement to modify our behaviour so that we may be true followers of his ways. Well, there's no doubt that the past year has been momentous in terms of signs of the times, signs that point to the fulfilment of Bible prophecy, leading to the promised return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And after all, that is the great hope that we have, isn't it? And we've always got to keep that hope in view because it is the answer to all the world's problems and indeed our own. And that is why we took that initial reading from Acts chapter one, very well-known words, but it's such an important section of scripture, isn't it? So perhaps we might just come back there um, before we go any further. Let's come back to Acts chapter one, and we'll go in at verse three, where we read that the Lord showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them, his apostles, 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So the great preaching book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, begins by speaking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God. Of course, those two things are bound together. But we might wonder why the Lord needed to speak to his disciples again at this time about the kingdom. After all, they'd gone out and preached the gospel of the kingdom, hadn't they? But of course, there were things about that doctrine that they hadn't fully understood before particularly about the Lord's own work in relation to the kingdom. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord. The margin says, Greek, pity thyself. Pity thyself, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Well, how thankful we should be, brothers and sisters, that the Lord did not pity himself, as Peter had suggested, but rather he went up to Jerusalem and faced all that he had to there. And the Lord rebuked Peter, didn't he? And after his resurrection, he had to rebuke two other disciples on the road to Emmaus, when he said to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? The resurrection of Christ the King made the coming of the kingdom absolutely certain. 
And the importance of these things is continually stressed throughout this book and indeed uh, throughout scripture. But when was the kingdom going to come? Well, that was the question on the disciples' minds. Just look at verse six. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They wanted the kingdom immediately. And that surely is the desire of all true disciples. But it was not to be. As the Lord says in verse seven, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his own power. They weren't to know the time. And then shortly afterwards, the Lord was taken up into heaven in verses 10 and 11. And there we have the words of the angels. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And surely, brothers and sisters, this verse 11 is one of the clearest statements in the whole of Scripture that Messiah is coming again. There is absolutely nothing about this verse that we can possibly misunderstand. It's a clear statement. And of course, this is a key hope that we all have, isn't it? Once more, his feet are going to stand upon that mountain from which he ascended in fulfillment of the prophecy given long before by Zechariah, Zechariah 14. Now, Luke tells us that having heard these words, the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy no doubt having the prospect of the coming kingdom burning brightly in their minds. And as the Acts record continues, so they deliver their testimony. And of course, uh, we can read their testimony, we can read their own certainty that the Lord was going to return and be encouraged by that. This is our hope, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And the many signs of the times that God provides us are also an encouragement to help us focus on that particular hope that we have. So what can we say then about the past year? Well, I think it's always helpful to look at uh, events, perhaps against a slightly wider canvas, over a period of years, Bible in hand, because that allows us to make a better assessment of the importance of certain events and also to see trends in world affairs. From the point of view of Bible prophecy, amongst the most significant developments over the last few years must surely be the strengthening of Iran and the rapid advance of Russian forces into the Middle East. The only way to remove them would be by force, and the West seems to have no appetite to do that, even assuming it could be achieved. Now, although it seems longer, at least to me, it was in fact only about this time last year that President Trump left office in the United States after a very tumultuous four years. But they were very significant years, weren't they, brothers and sisters, especially in relation to the Middle East and the state of Israel. Israel, a country that is threatened on many sides. And President Trump left a legacy that the new administration is having to deal with, and in fact, is continuing to work with. It's just worth reminding ourselves of some of the key developments. So let's think, first of all, of the city of Jerusalem. In December 2017, President Trump announced, as he said he would do on the campaign trail, that the US recognised Jerusalem as Israel's capital city. It was a momentous announcement, wasn't it? He claimed that, that it was nothing more or less than a recognition of reality. 
adding, it's also the right thing to do. He also ordered plans to be made to relocate the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, despite all the international criticism that followed, the official opening ceremony took place on May the 14th, appropriately enough, 2018, in front of 800 American and Israeli guests. At the same time, violent confrontation took place between the Israeli Defense Force and Palestinian protesters along the border with Gaza. Such strife, which breaks out frequently, is sad to witness. And yet the prophets of old were very clear that in the latter days, Jerusalem is going to be at the center of Middle East strife. Zechariah describes the city as a burdensome stone, and it will prove to be so for the nations that eventually come against the land, only to be defeated by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just remember the words that we have there on the left-hand side of the screen in Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, the prophet says that Jerusalem is going to become a burdensome stone for all people, for those nations that come against the city. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And in fact, those words of Zechariah remind us of some earlier words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 51, the, the verses are on the bottom of the screen there, you can see the reference. In Isaiah 51, this is what the prophet said. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Thus saith the Lord, thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, but I will put it into the hand of those that afflict thee. So there we have clear testimony that in the past, Jerusalem has indeed been the drinker of this cup that the prophets speak about. But at the time of the end, that cup has got to pass to others. The nations will gather against Jerusalem. It's a campaign that will act, as it were, as a kind of potent drink and intoxicate them into madness. For burdensome stone that the King James Version gives us, the new King James substitutes a very heavy stone. It's so weighty, in fact, that the combined efforts of the nations to try their strength against it will fail and they will severely injure themselves. And that's happened previously, of course, with Babylon, with Rome, with other nations who've ill-treated Israel. They've all been punished. The last strife is going to be the greatest of all. Now, we haven't quite reached the fulfillment of these prophetic words yet, but with each year that passes, we move a step nearer to Jerusalem, becoming that burdensome stone to the nations of which the prophet Zechariah speaks. Now, just move on and think about Iran. In 2018, President Trump announced that he was pulling the US out of the Iran nuclear deal, which had been negotiated with great fanfare under the previous administration to curb Iran's nuclear activities. Mr. Trump, you may remember, described the deal as decaying and rotten and an embarrassment. His decision was greeted, of course, with delight by Israel 
which had been pressing for this development, and also by parts of the Arab world that felt threatened by Iran's growing dominance in the Middle East. European leaders, on the other hand, voiced their dismay. Many commentators expressed a sense of foreboding, fearing that Tehran would now accelerate its progress towards a bomb uh, and that a serious conflict between Israel and Iran would become far more likely. Well, sure enough, the following year, in July 2019, Iran announced that it was breaking the limit imposed in the nuclear agreement on uranium enrichment. The new Biden administration, which came into office early last year, January 2021, came in with a desire to revive the deal. That was made very clear in the campaigning that they, they underwent. And various rounds of talks have been taking place in Vienna to that end, to revive this deal. But so far as I know, they haven't got anywhere as yet. The Israeli government, as we might expect, is totally opposed to these talks and determined to do everything in its power to prevent Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. Given Tehran's hostility, Israel would clearly be in the firing line. Israel's Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, has said the Iranian nuclear program is at the most advanced point ever. So he certainly sees it as a very serious issue. And it's not just a matter of nuclear weapons, is it, brothers and sisters, but the expansion of Iranian influence generally. The previous Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, back in 2018, claimed that Iran was trying to establish a continuous empire from Iran to Iraq, Syria, Lebanon and Gaza, adding this is a very dangerous development for our region. Press reports sub subsequently reflected this theme. For example, the following comments that I've just pulled from the Guardian newspaper, highlighting Tehran's determination to have a corridor of influence from Iran to the Mediterranean Sea. And this is what the report said. Securing a route through western Iraq and eastern Syria has been a core goal of Iran's leaders over the past three years. Regional officials say the establishment of such a corridor would in, entrench Iran's influence in the centre of the region. The main concern is the possibility of the transportation of missiles from Tehran to Beirut that will target and threaten the security of Israel. So I think from this, brothers and sisters, we can say with certainty, if the Lord remains away much longer, that future conflict between these two nations is a certainty. Indeed, the prophet Ezekiel indicates that this hostility is going to culminate in Iran's support for the Gogan invasion of the land of Israel at the time of the end, Ezekiel 38 and verse 5. Now let's just turn our attention to the north of Israel. As we say, it's a, it's a nation surrounded by enemies on many sides. To the north, we go there, northeast, to the Golan Heights. Israel, of course, finds itself threatened uh, from this, uh, this particular area and has done over the years. It's an area that Israel seized from Syria during the Six-Day War of 1967, and it's been held ever since. Following the Yom Kippur War, Israel and Syria agreed to the formation of a 44-mile demilitarized zone overseen by a UN observer force. Then in 1981, Israel passed a law which effectively annexed this territory. 
but this has never been internationally recognised and it's regarded by most nations as occupied land, now with more than 30 Israeli settlements considered illegal under international law. In fact, the Israeli cabinet only last December approved plans for over 7,000 more settler homes in this particular region. So President Trump, when he made his announcement on March 25th, 2019, that he was officially recognising the Golan Heights as part of Israel, really caused a stir. And what an announcement that was. It would no doubt have heartened many Israelis, but it was also remarkable because, in fact, this territory is included in the land that God promised to Abraham and his seed. And so in that announcement, we saw yet another step forward, another development in the ongoing purpose of God. And it's interesting that the Biden administration has not chosen to reverse course on this because they see the Israeli presence there uh, helping to keep the area peaceful. So they've maintained what President Trump began. And surely this is, this is in the purpose of God. Now let's come back to our map and turn west to the Gaza Strip. Well, to the west, Israel has had to contend with the Hamas-dominated Gaza. The shelling and tunnel building into Israel from this area has led to outbreaks of hostilities, as we know. Just remember, last year, there was the 11-day war between the two in May 2021. And in, in the aftermath, both sides claimed victory. But the ceasefire is only a pause until the next crisis erupts. Now come back to the north of Israel and focus for a moment on Lebanon. The hostility of Hezbollah in Lebanon, backed by Iran, makes that border a potential flashpoint for future strife. Lebanon's economic and political stability was shattered by the factional fighting of the civil war between 1975 to 90, a period that saw both Syrian and Israeli invasions of the country. But while this country was still struggling to recover, you may remember that in August 2020, Lebanon came to the world's attention when an enormous explosion took place at the port of Beirut, the capital. It killed over 200 people, left thousands injured and nearly 300,000 people homeless. The finger of blame was quickly laid at the door of Hezbollah, that Lebanese-based terrorist group funded by Iran, which it was claimed controlled the area of the port where the explosion took place. In the aftermath of the incident, a UN spokesperson described the country's plight like this, as an economic crisis, a financial crisis, a political crisis, a health crisis with coronavirus, and now, she said, this horrible explosion. Well, just move on a year into 2021, and the situation did not improve, did it? The Daily Telegraph last summer reported that rampant inflation has exacerbated inequality. When the pumps have not run completely dry, hour-long waits at petrol stations are inescapable. The fuel shortage also means the generator companies no longer supply 24-7 electricity. In February of last year, anxious families desperately sought out black market bottled oxygen, 
as COVID patients were treated in their cars outside overflowing hospitals. Political disagreements prevented the formation of a new government uh, because the previous uh, government resigned following the explosion. And a new government was only formed last September after a 13-month standoff. So the situation in Lebanon is still pretty dire. But there's something else. Earlier last year, it was announced that Lebanon would seek economic assistance from Moscow, in particular to help build electric power stations, restore the port at Beirut, and provide supplies of vaccines against the scourge of coronavirus. Now, Russia already has a significant presence in Syria, in particular with its naval base at Tartus. And having, uh, having intervened in the Syrian civil war, is seeking, as one commentator put it, to expand its influence in the region and control the energy resources in the Eastern Mediterranean. That same commentator also said, for some Lebanese, Russia is seen as a force that can provide stability. Russia has also offered security and military coordination and investments in Lebanon's underdeveloped energy sector. Russia has recently been showing greater interest in Lebanon's domestic affairs, specifically when it comes to breaking the political deadlock. Now, these developments may very well prove to be dangerous for Israel. Interestingly, though, when Israel fought its 11-day war with Hamas in Gaza last May, Apart from a few clashes on the border, Hezbollah in Lebanon stayed out of that conflict. We might wonder why. Well, a Lebanese official quoted by the Times of Israel explained why. And this is what was said. Israel does not want an Israel-Hezbollah war while it tries to win sanctions relief. Uh, Iran, I should say. Iran does not want an Israel-Hezbollah war while it tries to win sanctions relief from the US at the nuclear talks in Vienna. In addition, conflict with Israel would, leave, would lead to Hezbollah's stockpile of precision missiles being raised at the negotiations. Hezbollah's arsenal of advanced weapons is a major concern to Israel. Moscow, by contrast, has never labeled Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, and in recent years has leaned closely to the Iran-Hezbollah-Syria axis. So we can see, can't we, Israel is indeed surrounded by enemies on many sides. When at the time of the end, the northern invader comes down against God's land, the prophets suggest very clearly to us that both Gaza and Lebanon are going to be judged because of their opposition to Israel. Just think about the words of the prophet Joel. In Joel chapter three, he talks about this time to come when God is going to gather the nations and judge them for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. All the current strife in that region is about those things, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It all centers on the people and the land which has been parted. And we're reminded of that every time we look at a map showing Israel within its current boundaries. Now, the prophet Joel carries on by pronouncing judgment, and you can see the words on the screen there, on Tyre and Sidon, 
and all the regions of Philistia, as the ESV puts it. In other words, God is going to inflict judgment on Lebanon and on the Gaza Strip. And yet in that same chapter of Joel, the prophet gives us an assurance. He says the Lord will be the hope, the margin is place of repair or harbour of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. It's a lovely thought, isn't it? That through all the crisis that has to come, God is going to be the place of repair or the harbour for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. And Joel concludes his prophecy with a picture of Eden restored on earth, the time when the Lord God will again dwell in Zion. And once again, our attention is focused on the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps one of the most remarkable signs that we've seen recently has been the establishment of the Abrahamic Abraham Accords, as they are known, again under the auspices of President Trump the first anniversary of which was celebrated last autumn at a Zoom meeting hosted by the new Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. <clears throat> These agreements were the first to be signed between Israel and Arab nations since the Israeli peace treaties with Egypt in, uh, peace treaties with Egypt in 1979 and Jordan in 1994. So, so these are very significant agreements. After all, are they not brothers and sisters? Addressing that meeting then on September the 17th, 2021, Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, said this. September the 15th, 2020, leaders from Bahrain, Israel, the United Arab, Arab Emirates signed the Abraham Accords. A few months later, on December the 10th, Israel and Morocco also signed a normalization agreement. Today, a year after the accords and normalization agreements were signed, he said, the benefits continue to grow. He went on to speak about deepening diplomatic relationships and growing people-to-people -people ties. For example, he says, despite COVID-19, more than 130,000 Israelis visited the United Arab Emirates just in the first four months and a, uh, four and a half months after the accords were signed. He spoke of new economic opportunities, innovations, collaborations. In order to keep progress moving, the US, he said, would help foster Israel's growing ties with Bahrain, with Morocco, with the United Arab Emirates, as well as with Sudan, which has also signed the Abraham Accords, and Kosovo, which established ties with Israel at the beginning of the year. The US would encourage others to follow their lead and also work to deepen Israel's long-standing relationships with Israel and Jordan. So these Abraham Accords are really quite momentous, aren't they? And, and, and world leaders are able to see that, as Anthony Blinken expressed. It should be noted that for Israel and the others involved in the Accords, there's also the desire for, for a united front against Iran. Interestingly, when Israel's foreign minister recently visited Bahrain, a photo opportunity was arranged at a U.S. naval base, home to the U.S. Fifth Fleet, which monitors the Persian Gulf and Indian Ocean. As the Times of Israel observed, the message was stark. The U.S. backs Israel's burgeoning ties with Gulf states. Washington is determined to protect civilian shipping against att attacks by Iran, 
and its proxies. Any who believe the American withdrawal from Afghanistan means the US is washing its hands of the region are mistaken, said the article. So there is a regional alignment taking place here, brothers and sisters, is there not, that we're witnessing that is a remarkable and ongoing development. And I think in line with our expectations according to Bible prophecy. When the Gogian invasion of the land occurs, according to Ezekiel 38, amongst the powers that protest at the invasion are Sheba and Dedan, names which point us to this very Gulf region. In the end, of course, as Ezekiel makes clear, the invaders are only defeated following divine intervention. And this thought naturally reads, leads us, I think, to have a look at Ezekiel 38. Very familiar words, but let's turn up the passage now, shall we? And, uh, and just remind ourselves of some of these things that we know very well. So Ezekiel chapter 38. Now, just while you're looking for that, the prophet Daniel tells us that at the time of the end, as he calls it, the end of the present dispensation, when the kingdom of God on earth is about to be established with the Lord Jesus Christ, as king, there's going to be a time of trouble such as never was. At this time, he and other Old Testament prophets tell us a strong army from the north is going to sweep down across the Middle East and occupy the land of Israel. Ezekiel 38 speaks of it as a confederation of powers, as we know from the early verses of this chapter. This ties in with Joel's picture of the latter days. He says that one of the features of that time is going to be that the nations will arm themselves, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. This will allow the weak, says Joel, to say, I am strong. Well, Ezekiel 38 identifies a number of smaller powers in league with the main invading power. And no doubt the weaker ones will consider themselves to be strong in this alliance. So just come back to verses two and three. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince, or as the revised version says, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and thus say, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I'm against thee, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. So the prophet tells us, as we know very well, that the leader of this invasion is going to be Gog of the land of Magog. Magog being an ancient name for the land of the Scythians to the north, in what we know as the southern part of Russia and Ukraine. Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, of course, point us in the same direction. And, and this has been expanded many times by our brethren over the years. But it all suggests, doesn't it, that the latter-day confederacy is indeed going to be led by Russia. And the prophet says in verse 9 that the army is going to come down like a cloud to cover the land. It's going to be an overwhelming force. And amongst the nations in support of the invader will be, verse 5, Persia or Iran, Ethiopia and Libya. Likewise, Daniel 11 speaks of a, the latter-day invasion of the Middle East and the land of Israel by a power described as the king of the north. It's a different term for the same invader. And Ezekiel indicates in verse 13 of this chapter that this power is going to be challenged diplomatically and ineffectively by a group of nations opposed to the invasion. 
those naturally more sympathetic to Israel, such as Britain, Australia, the US, Canada, New Zealand, and so on, referred to as the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions. Now, in that connection, the sudden announcement last September of a new trilateral agreement was remarkable, wasn't it, brothers and sisters? It's a new security pact involving the US, Britain, and Australia, known as AUKUS. Under this agreement, the US and UK will provide sensitive nuclear technology, allowing Australia to build nuclear-powered submarines. And you may recall that when this announcement was made, without really any warning, it came quite suddenly, didn't it, in the press? It caused quite a furore because it ended an existing deal Australia had with France. But as far as Britain is concerned, isn't this another indication that following Brexit, she's looking beyond Europe and seeking to strengthen ties with traditional allies, working, if you like, with the young lions? So these young lions then in verse 13 of Ezekiel 38, as we've said, are coupled with Sheba and Dedan, these names that point us to the Gulf region, including, no doubt, Saudi Arabia. Interestingly, there has been a general thaw in relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Perhaps the main reason for the marked change of tone was given by the BBC in a report a little while ago when it said, to all intents and purposes, Saudi Arabia and Israel are de facto allies in the struggle against Iran's rising influence in the region. Of course, other Gulf states, as we've been saying, also fear the growing power of Iran. But this group of powers, when the invasion of Ezekiel 38 takes place, are only able to voice a weak protest. Art thou come to take a spoil? Which means they are either unable or unwilling to act. Or perhaps they are simply taken by surprise when the invasion takes place. But you see, looking at current events, brothers and sisters, and you know, we've just gone over ground that we all know very well. Looking at current events, it's not difficult, is it, to see the scenario of Ezekiel 38 coming to pass. Russia, a major power to the north of Israel, is becoming ever more confident and aggressive on the international stage. Notwithstanding the harsh economic sanctions imposed on her in recent years by the EU, the US and other countries, Moscow has largely been acting as she pleases in Ukraine and Crimea. And the Baltic states are also said to feel under threat. President Putin won another six years in power. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it will be the last six years, but he won another six years in power in the presidential elections of March 2018. He has been Russia's most powerful politician for the last 20 years. Uh, and a, a newspaper article noted, Senior Russian officials have said that Vladimir Putin's decisive win in the presidential elections reflects popular support for his muscular foreign policy and would bolster his role as a counterweight to the West. Well, we're seeing evidence of this muscular uh, foreign policy, aren't we, at, at the moment? Famously, back in 2005, when President Putin delivered his annual State of the Nation address to the Russian parliament, broadcast live on Russian TV, he said, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century, the 20th century, of course, he meant. He also declared, 
We are a free nation and our place in the modern world will be defined only by how successful and strong we are. And as we say, we're seeing evidence of his muscular foreign policy. Now, it's in the newspapers almost every day, the threat to Ukraine. There's a widespread belief that a Russian invasion may well be imminent. Moscow has assembled a large force of over 100,000 troops near its border with Ukraine. Hostilities between Russia and Ukraine have been ongoing, of course, since 2014, when Moscow annexed Crimea and supported a separatist uprising in eastern Ukraine, resulting in the existing stalemate. Mr Putin has denied that he has plans to invade, saying only that Russia would respond militarily if NATO attempted any eastward expansion. But at the same time, he's demanded concessions from Ukraine and the West. In particular, that NATO should halt its eastern expansion. And the key demand, a promise that Ukraine will never be admitted to NATO. And that's a condition that the West is very unlikely to meet. In a video call, President Biden told Mr. Putin that he should expect strong economic and other measures in the event of military escalation. But more recently, the US president has admitted, whether he meant to or not, that he expects Mr. Putin to move in on Ukraine. And while Britain has supported the US position, a number of, a number of EU leaders have been hesitating. And whether the threatened measures will be enough to deter Russia is far from certain. In fact, NATO's Secretary General has made it clear that Ukraine could not expect to rely on the collective defence commitments of the Northern Atlantic Treaty. So if Russia does invade, it doesn't seem as though NATO is really going to do a great deal about it, at least not militarily. Now, in a number of, uh, on a number of occasions recently, in signs articles in the Christadelphian magazine, it has been suggested that Russia is, is likely, very likely, at some point to retake Ukraine. Historically, Russia and Ukraine have had strong ties, with Kiev, Ukraine's ancient capital, being the centre of Kievan Rus, the first East Slavic state. In addition, the country's size, you know, Ukraine by area is the largest state in Europe by area, if you discount Russia. So it's a huge country. Its size, its population, its richness in agriculture, in years gone by, it was regarded as the breadbasket of the old Soviet Union. And its mineral wealth also make it very tempting, even we might say an essential area for Russia to repossess in order to fulfil its role as the Rosh of Ezekiel 38. Just adding to that, in the Christadelphian magazine last September, we ran an article um, which was entitled uh, President uh, on, on the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Uh, actually, the article was entitled Prince of Rosh, but it was all about this heading that's on the screen there, which was to be found on President Putin's official website. And this is what he had to say back in July last year. Uh, the brother writing the article pointed out that in uh, President Putin's uh, article on his website, he wrote that Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians are the heirs of ancient Rus, which was the largest state in Europe. 
and he repeatedly refers to Kiev as the center of power for the ancient Rus. Mr. Putin noted that like other European states at that time, ancient Rus was faced with a weakening of central power, fragmentation. He then explained perhaps ominously that history decreed that Moscow became the center of reunification, which continued the tradition of ancient Russian statehood. In these words, he hints that Moscow is destined again to become the center of reunification, thus justifying Russia's aggressive stance against the U Ukrainian government in Kiev. Well, brothers and sisters, whatever happens in the short term, our understanding of Russia's role in the latter days suggests that at some point Ukraine, or at least a very large part of it, will indeed fall. Now, the signs that we have around us, and we've just really been thinking of a few of them in the few minutes we've had together in this talk, the signs that we see around us suggest that we are indeed living in that era just prior to Christ's return. The world in general over the last couple of years has in large measure been absorbed by the coronavirus pandemic. Well, for all of us, some of the actions of governments and the skill of scientists during this time uh, we found to be a great blessing. But even so, this pandemic has provided a stark and for many a distressing reminder of human frailty. The only solution to which is the hope with which we began this address. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Even so come Lord Jesus. And while we wait for that event, brothers and sisters, we need to watch and pray always. Brothers and sisters, the title for this second talk, as you have realised, is taken from this uh, 21st chapter of the Gospel through Luke that uh, Brother Paul has, uh, has just been reading to us. If we go back to the beginning of the chapter, we find that we have the account of the widow giving her two mites. The treasury was in the court of the women. Thirteen trumpet-shaped containers stood here for voluntary offerings of money each having an inscription which stated the purpose for which the money was to be used. And as we, as we see here, the widow threw in two mites, two very small copper coins. This was the smallest sum they were allowed to give, but in the widow's case, it was the largest amount she could give, and she is commended by the Lord. The reference to temple gifts in the first few verses then leads on to comments in verse 5 about how magnificent the temple was. And Jesus then gives a startling prophecy about the destruction of the temple, the city of Jerusalem, and an end to the Jewish state. And we can understand the comments of verse 5, can't we? Some spake of the temple and how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. We can understand that. It was a magnificent building. The temple in Jerusalem, built by King Herod the Great, or at least begun by him, was a massive structure which took about 80 years to complete. It was begun in 19 BC. 
The main structure was finished by 9 BC, but work on it wasn't finished until 64 AD. And ironically, that was only a few years before it was destroyed. Just as an aside, it also helps to explain why it is in the gospel records that we sometimes read that Jesus was teaching in the temple precincts and the Jews took up stones to stone him. Well, it must have been like a building site through the ministry of the Lord, and that's why they could do that. But Jesus was very clear that this edifice was going to be destroyed. The columns of the cloisters were of marble and 40 feet high. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing in The Wars of the Jews, tells us that the temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceeding white, says Josephus. And yet the Lord Jesus very plainly said this entire edifice was going to be destroyed there in verse 6. Mark tells us that it was four of his own disciples, Peter, James, John and Andrew, who asked the question recorded here in verse 7. Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? When shall these things be? Well, the Lord's disciples, we know, thought that the kingdom of God was immediately going to appear. We're told that plainly in, in Luke 19, verse 11. And probably they expected the destruction of the, the city and the temple to be followed immediately by the setting up of the kingdom of God. Now, we've got the benefit of history to help us, haven't we, brothers and sisters? We know that about 40 years after this conversation took place, in the face of a serious Jewish revolt, the Romans came and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. The Roman general Titus ordered that the temple should be spared when the city was taken. But unusually for Roman soldiers, his men ran amok and it was destroyed. That, that was in AD 70. The Romans then had Temple Mount ploughed, leaving no trace of the temple. The western or wailing wall that remains today was never part of the temple itself, but a small section of the massive retaining walls that Herod the Great built to support the huge quantities of, of rubble that were needed to support the temple platform. Jesus had said, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. It was such an unlikely thing to happen when he spoke, and yet some 40 years on, it all came to pass just as the Lord prophesied. The whole complex of buildings disappeared. The great destruction of the city and the temple in AD 70 effectively brought an end to the Jewish state and the Mosaic order. But it was going to be a long time between that, well, here we are some 2,000 years later, and the setting up of the kingdom. But the Lord had warned his disciples, though they hadn't really taken the information in during his ministry, he'd warned them that it was going to be a long time. Just think to the parable he told in Matthew 25, where he likened himself to a man travelling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And then the Lord says, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh. So, so the Lord had said plainly it was going to be a long time, but the disciples hadn't really taken it in at that stage. Well, here in Luke chapter 21, he gave his immediate disciples many signs of the times, as we would call them, to look out for. 
And it's always worth rereading them because we can see that the Lord's words came to pass with total accuracy. And that should give us all good reason to look carefully at the signs of our own days leading to his return. So in verse 8 then of Luke 21, he says, Take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. So he warns his followers about the issue of deceivers who would seek to lead them astray, some indeed claiming to be Christ. Some years later, the Apostle John warned believers to beware of false prophets, deceivers whom he calls antichrists. Well, the pages of history, brothers and sisters, are littered with such people. And it's just as important today that Christ's followers do not allow themselves to be deceived by impostors. And how do we make sure we're not deceived? By testing everything against the word of God. When the Apostle Paul called the elders of the Ephesian Ecclesia to him at Miletus in Acts 20, he warned them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. For I know this, he said, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves men shall arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch. And surely the Apostle Paul there was echoing Jesus' exhortation to his disciples in Luke 21. But there's also an echo in the Apostle Paul's words of much earlier words spoken by Moses to Israel in Deuteronomy 31, when he says to them, I know that after my death, you will utterly corrupt yourselves. And Paul speaks about what will happen after his departing in Acts 20. And in, in Deuteronomy 31, Moses exhorts Israel to keep the law of God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul exhorts brothers and sisters to hold fast to the word of God. And now, brethren, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. So we, we have to hold fast to the word, brothers and sisters. That is the way in which we ensure that we're not led astray while we wait for our master to return. And then Jesus goes on, doesn't he, in verse nine of this chapter and says, you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. He speaks about nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He speaks about earthquakes, famines, pestilences, great signs. So the end is not by and by, he says. In other words, it's not immediately. Wars and commotions speaks of a time of political convulsions. There would also be natural disasters, he says, famine, pestilences and earthquakes. And when we read these words, we, we may very well feel that they're a pretty good description of the age in which we're living even though, in fact, the Lord was warning his disciples about signs that they would witness in their day. And it's not surprising that we should find this, because as we read through Scripture, we find that the pattern of God's judgments is repeated. We just think about the fact that in the very first book of the Bible, we have the dramatic account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed by fire and brimstone. And then you come on to the last book of the Bible, and you have the destruction of Babylon the Great. 
and the description is given in the same terms as the destruction of Sodom back in the book of Genesis. Same kind of language, different judgment, different time. But the pattern of God's judgments is repeated. That's the way that our Heavenly Father works, isn't it? Well, not only would there be trouble in and around the land, but believers would face trouble personally. Verse 12 of, of Luke 21. Before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And we only have to read through the book of Acts, brothers and sisters, to see that those words of the Lord came to pass. The Roman historian Suetonius tells us that under Nero, punishments were also inflicted on the Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious belief. And another Roman historian, Tacitus, said much the same thing. But then Jesus adds in verse 13, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. The great tribulation that they had to bear, instead of discouraging them, would confirm that they were actually in the right way. They would see in their trials the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, as well as being a testimony to the truth. And in verses 14 and 15, the Lord assures his disciples that their testimony would be guided. Nevertheless, verses 16 and 17, they would face betrayal, even by their closest associates. They would suffer martyrdom and general hatred. And then the Lord gives an assurance and an exhortation in verse 18. He says, but there shall not an hair of your head perish. Now we need to be careful when we, when we read that brothers and sisters because that assurance in verse 18 has to be understood in the light of what the Lord has just said in verse 16 that some of them would be put to death. So in verse 18 the Lord is speaking about ultimate security. Hence as he says in verse 19 in your patience possess ye your souls, in your patience, your endurance, as the margin in my Bible says, ye shall win your lives. As Jesus said elsewhere, he that endureth to the end shall be saved. By watching and holding fast, his followers would indeed gain the kingdom. And that's what we have to do, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Watch and we have to hold fast. And then when we get to verse 20, the Lord continues, and these are the words that we read, when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it, Jerusalem, depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance. And when he gets down to verse 24, he says, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, I imagine that the disciples listening to the Lord would have found his words in verse 21 somewhat puzzling. When the crisis comes, he says, and Jerusalem is surrounded by enemy armies, then leave the city, depart out straight into the arms of the Romans. Well, that would mean certain death, surely. But interestingly, do you notice, brothers and sisters, that this was the very instruction 
that many years before the prophet Jeremiah had given to King Zedekiah. If he left Jerusalem, he would live, even though the Chaldeans were going to take it. And Zedekiah didn't have the faith to obey Jeremiah's instruction. But this is what the Lord is telling his followers to do at this time here. He's saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemy armies, leave the city. And actually, the Lord's words worked out in a most remarkable way. And we know this, of course, from history. In the early days of the Jewish war against the Romans, which commenced in AD 66, a Roman army came against Jerusalem under a general named Cestius Gallus. He almost captured the city, but for some reason, and nobody's quite sure why, perhaps he didn't realise how near to success he was, the Roman commander decided to withdraw. And believers who'd been trapped in Jerusalem saw this as the sign that the Lord had spoken about and took their opportunity to flee. And then nothing happened for another three years or so. And so they had to have the faith to stay away, having seen the sign. But these were dramatic signs, weren't they, that the Lord speaks about here, that these early disciples had to look out for. Uh, and we can see, looking back on it, that it all came to pass. It was all fulfilled, just as the Lord said it would be. The Jewish war of AD 66 to 70 led to the destruction of the city and the temple. Another revolt in AD 132 to 5 led to the rebuilding of Jerusalem on a much smaller scale. Renamed Elia Capitolina, it became a Roman garrison town from which Jews were excluded. And it wasn't until the early 4th century AD, the reign of Constantine, that Jews were again allowed to enter the city. And over the years since then, the city has experienced many vicissitudes. It has, for example, been captured and held by Arabs, Turks, Crusaders. And of course, in the first half of the last century, it was under British rule. Yes, as, as the Lord indicated in verse 24, it has indeed been trodden down of the Gentiles, but not forever. We always lay emphasis, and rightly so, on that word until, don't we, in verse 24 only until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And over the past 70 years or so, brothers and sisters, we have seen a remarkable revival of the land and people after centuries of the land lying desolate and the people being scattered. Since the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, Israel has hardly ever been out of the news. And it's so clear, isn't it? We shouldn't just take it for granted because it's been there in the lifetimes of most of us, I guess. We shouldn't take it for granted. It's clear that it's leading to the return of Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth. In other words, brothers and sisters, the regathering of Israel that we've been seeing has been no accident. The state of Israel, as we see it currently, is essentially a secular state. It doesn't put God at the forefront of its affairs. But that is going to change in time as a result of extreme trial. And perhaps that is what we see building up in the Middle East now, some of those events that we were looking at in our first talk. But the Lord Jesus then continued in verse 25 by saying this. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. So in figurative language, then, the Lord is saying that these signs are going to take place after the downtreading of Jerusalem by the Gentiles, which he's spoken about in verse 24. While the Jewish heavens are extinguished, 
the Gentile heavens prevail. And in verse 25, the Lord seems to be indicating that when Gentile times are fulfilled and the Gentile heavens are coming to an end, there are going to be these signs. Sun, moon and stars speak of ruling authorities. Distress of nations and perplexity has certainly been a feature of recent times. We look around our world today and we see increasing violence, licentiousness, pollution, the Earth's natural resources diminishing, political convulsions, war, disease, and many other problems. There is indeed distress of nations with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring, well, that figuratively seems to indicate the power of people being exercised, whether in democratic or more authoritarian states, the rise of popular movements in various countries. The powers of heaven, or literally the heavens, shall be shaken. And again, with two world wars and numerous other conflicts during the past century, we've seen in different countries of the world sudden violent changes of government, old dynasties being overthrown, government instability. But without examining, examining in detail all of these figures, there are certainly two comments that the Lord makes here that are easy to understand at first reading. He says in verse 25, there will be distress of nations with perplexity. And it's not difficult to understand that, is it? The New English Bible translates that. On earth, nations will stand helpless, not knowing which way to turn. And in verse 26, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things that are coming on the earth. Or again, as the New English Bible puts it, men will faint with terror at the thought of all that is coming upon the world. That, brothers and sisters, is the time of trouble such as never was that Daniel speaks about. This is to be the situation just before the Lord's return. But then he says to his disciples in verse 28, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. And in the Lord's parable that follows, he refers to the revival of nature, marking summer's approach. By mentioning the fig tree, he might well have been indicating a Jewish revival. Certainly that is what we have seen, isn't it? Verse 31. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. The coming of the Son of Man, brothers and sisters, brings the kingdom of God. And in verse 32, he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Now, the meaning of those words has often been debated. Clearly, the generation who heard his words wouldn't experience the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles, spoken about in verse 24, and the signs associated with that from verse 25 onwards. But many of those who listened to, Lord, to the Lord speak would witness the terrible destruction he had foretold that would come upon the Jews in AD 70. That generation would not pass away until all those things that the disciples had asked the Lord about were fulfilled. Those things they'd asked him about back in verse 7. Now, the Lord told them more than that. But this verse makes it very clear that that generation wouldn't pass till all those things that they'd asked him about in verse 7 would be fulfilled. And just like the Lord's followers in the first century, brothers and sisters, 
we live in exciting and, humanly speaking, dangerous times. But as we've been seeing this afternoon, there are so many signs for us to look at, to encourage us and to help us to hold fast. The Lord concluded this particular prophecy by making it very clear to his disciples that it's not enough just looking at external signs. We've been doing that this afternoon, and, and there is a place for that, of course, because we see the hand of God at work so very plainly. The prophet Habakkuk was told years before to behold and regard among the nations and wonder marvellously. You know, we can praise God when we see his word being fulfilled. There is a role for looking at signs of the times, things that are happening out there and being encouraged. But that's not enough in itself, because as Jesus makes it clear at the end of this chapter, we also have to look at ourselves. Yes, we look out there, but we also look in here. Men and women will not, in general, be watching for Christ's return. They will be taken completely by surprise. Just look and see what he said in verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that she may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. As a snare, says Jesus, it will come on all them that dwell on the whole earth. It's going to be a complete surprise to men and women generally when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But that surprise should not be shared by his followers. It shouldn't apply to us, brothers and sisters. The exhortation he gives to us here is to watch and pray always so that we might then be ready to stand before the Son of Man. On another occasion, Jesus said to his disciples, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And the Lord, as the Lord warns us here in verse 34, if while we wait for his coming, we allow ourselves to be caught up in materialism and pleasure-seeking, there's plenty of temptations along those lines these days, then we're not going to be ready for the Lord's return. We have a responsibility. As he says in verse 36, we have to watch. And the word that's used there, the Greek word, means to be watchful, to be vigilant, to be sleepless. In other words, to keep awake. Vine, in, in his expository dictionary comments, the word expresses not mere watchful, not, not mere wakefulness, but the watchfulness of those who are intent upon a thing. So then we have to keep awake spiritually, brothers and sisters, and we have to pray always. Later, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter six echoes this when he writes about the spiritual warrior, having itemized the various pieces of armour that the warrior needs uh, and the six of them down to the sword of the spirit and we're looking for the seventh well the seventh is there but it's prayer isn't it Paul concludes by saying praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching it's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 as we have here in Luke 21 watching he says thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints the spiritual warrior has to keep awake 
he has to watch and he can all he can always keep in touch with the one in command through prayer the basis of acceptable prayer brothers and sisters has to be an acknowledgement of need the lord made this very plain in his parable of the pharisee and the publican let's turn back a page or two to luke chapter 18 words we know very well Jesus spoke about a Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray to God. But in reality, he says in verse 11, the man only prayed with himself. Now, it's not a very nice thought in a way, brothers and sisters, but we have to face the fact that if it was possible for this Pharisee to pray only with himself, it must also be possible for us. So we need to think very carefully about the prayers that we offer. And when you look at what the Lord tells us, we can see what the problem was. The Pharisee recited the various things that he did in life. He fasted twice a week. He gave tithes, both of which were external rites. There's no reference to this man searching his heart or his motives. The rites, of course, had their proper place. But in laying so much stress on the form, he had completely lost sight of their meaning. There was no humility. There was no acknowledgement of need. And we can find ourselves in this parable if we're not careful. How often do we read it, brothers and sisters, and think to ourselves, God, I thank thee that I am not as this Pharisee. And as soon as we begin to think like that, we're there in the Lord's parable. So we need to be careful. The publican, on the other hand, when we get to verse 13, was acutely aware of his need. He was aware of his own personal failure and he sought God's mercy. God, he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And just like that man, brothers and sisters, we have to be of a humble frame of mind, conscious of our need. And we have to recognise that God alone can meet it. And in that very recognition, there's an acknowledgement of God's greatness and we glorify his name. So we can, in humility, take our concerns and our anxieties to God in prayer. But the publican's short prayer shows us the right approach and the right balance. It is, of course, very short, but it's a prayer that the Lord commends. When you think about it, it is beautifully balanced. It begins with God. It ends with me, a sinner. And it's the mercy of God that brings the two together. So short as it is, it is a beautifully balanced prayer when the lord taught his disciples to pray he instructed them to begin by praising the name and the goodness of god the focus of the lord's prayer as we, we usually call it is clearly to hallow god's name and to pray for the kingdom to come yes he also taught us to pray give us this day our daily bread but that short request only serves to emphasize how simple our, our, our needs really are and it also illustrates the words of Deuteronomy 8 very well. Do you remember? Man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. That is the basis of biblical humility, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Those words in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, it's the basis of biblical humility. The recognition that ultimately we do not live by material things, but we live by what comes from God. The Apostle John expressed a great truth when he said in his first epistle, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything, 
according to his will, he heareth us. So in bringing our prayers in line, brothers and sisters, with the promises of God, whether for the kingdom to be established, Israel fully restored to the land, or on a more personal level, for our sins to be forgiven, or for the granting of our daily bread, we have the assurance that God hears our prayer. He knows what is best for us and is able to control events accordingly. Sometimes, of course, the answer to our prayer, despite our best motives, will be no or wait. And we need to have the discipline to be prepared to accept that. So praying always is essential. We just come back to Luke 21, just finally now. Verse 36. Watch ye therefore and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things. And I take that to be the things he's referred to in verse 34, all the errors that we might fall into, that we can escape all these things that shall come to pass and that we might stand before the Son of Man. And surely that is standing in the sense that Daniel was told about when in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, God said to him that he would rest and stand in his lot in the end of days. And surely, brothers and sisters, this is our hope, isn't it? That we might stand in our lot, that we might stand before the Son of Man in the day of his coming and might be received into his kingdom. And God grant that might be true for all of us who are met together this afternoon. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.